we're in Mark, and I'm not changing uh, that. Um, <laughs> but I, I have had to sort of move things around a little and go at this verse and that verse a little out of order, uh, simply because it is Christmas, and um, this is the time in where we, we talk a great deal and we focus on the Incarnation. And so what, what does the Incarnation, what, what does that do to the rest of us? I mean, we understand what it does to the Lord, right? It makes him the God-man who's capable now to be the high priest. But what does his Incarnation mean for, for all the rest of us? And luckily, we just so, by the providence of God, happen to be in a section in, in Mark that is talking about the family of God. What is the family of God? Who is the family of God? Who's in? Who's out? And so I'm going to just back up for a moment. If you have your Bibles, turn in Mark. Actually, go back, though, because I think at the end of chapter 3, there's sort of this abrupt um, kind of startling statement that Jesus makes. But it, but it actually is a conclusion to, to sort of some tension that's building from much earlier. So if you go back to chapter, at the very beginning of chapter 3, if you're looking there, a man, there's a story about a man with a withered hand. And you remember the typology of the withered hand. Jesus is making a demonstration. Uh, out of, uh, he's giving the, the elders and the Pharisees the opportunity to believe or not disbelieve by giving them this hand um, that is healed in their presence. And are they going to discern who he is through this withered hand? And, and because of what happens there, then you have this plot to kill him with the Herodians. Uh, which is had, sounds like Christmas morning to me because, of course, Herod was the one who desperately wanted to find out who this Christ was so he could murder him. So, so you hear this plot against Jesus' life by the Herodians has continued into his 30s now. So you have that. So you have the, the, the king, the governor of this land uh, under the Romans, is, is seeking the life of Christ. So he's clearly not of their, he's not of them. He's not one of theirs. So you go into the next story, and there Jesus is going into the mountains, uh, which was very common in those days for sort of uh, fringy nut job guys to go up in the mountains and, and to get a little following going and to start you know, raiding the Romans and doing nasty things. And so Jesus now, is, he's up there, and unlike all these other guys, he's bold enough to, um, to call out 12. Right? He, he's remaking Israel. Right? He's creating a new Israel in the hills of Galilee. So clearly old Israel are not his people. He's not of them either. So then you go uh, into the, the next story, or I'm sorry, in between there, there's this crowd, and this crowd keeps coming in, but the crowd, in between all these different stories, they, they appear here and appear there, but at one point, they're threatening to crush him, and at one point, you know, they're, they're in his face so much, he, he can't eat, even. And so they're, they're not friendly towards him. They just want what he's got. They don't care about him. They, they care about him doing something for them. And so he's clearly not of these people. He's got this fan base. He's got this huge following, these fawning fans who, are, who are, would more likely kill him uh, as long as they get something from him. So you have that. So then in verse 20, I'm all the way down there now. Now you have this weird story about his mom and his family coming to see him. And, and they're thinking he's a little crazy. <laughs> and then you go right into this this other story about the scribes accusing him of being of the household of Satan. Okay, so his family is trying to get at him. He's clearly not of them, though. He's, not, he's, he's ignoring his mom and his other family members. And then you have the scribes accusing him of being of the household of Satan. And so all along, through this whole chapter, this is who is this guy and whom, to whom does he belong? He doesn't belong to the crowds. He doesn't belong to the Pharisees. He doesn't belong to old Israel. He doesn't even apparently belong to his mom. <laughs> Right? His own mama 
right? Mama's outside and Mama wants to talk to you. And now how many of you guys, if your Mama showed up somewhere and they said, hey, uh, your Mom's outside, wouldn't we all go out there? I would. I, I know better. I would go and see what Mama wants. And, and this, whole, this whole time, you have all this tension. Who is this guy and to whom does he belong? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Mark and um, you're using him so powerfully to be so subtle and so powerful in, in the story that he has written about your son. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for your son who came into the world to save sinners like us. We thank you that you continue to teach us and grow us and raise us in the fear and admonition of your son. We thank you, Lord God, that um, no matter how how far we stray or how far we wander or how much wickedness we, we can pull off in one week, um, we know that we are of the household of God. Uh, you, you have given us assurances. You have given us um, things to hold on to, things to believe, things to uh, learn deeper and deeper every week for us to know to whom we belong. And, and, and as we sit here and look through this scripture where we're struggling um, to know who Jesus belongs to, it's, it's like our own lives. Teach us who we belong to. Okay, as you teach us who he belongs to, teach us who we belong to. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the text that I'm actually going to be talking about today, right? I'm just all of this was just to give some context. There's this thing that Mark does, and they call it, funny enough, the Markin sandwich, uh, which is weird, weird name for it. But what what Mark does is he has this ability to start telling a story. And before he's done, he, he inserts another story and then comes back and finishes the first story. And, and the reason that he does it is generally it looks like the, the things have nothing to do with one another. But actually, they, they, the two stories together help you interpret them. And it just creates depth. It creates complexity to the story. It, it brings out, once you actually start comparing the stories, because generally what we do is we, have, we start reading the first story, and then we just deal with the second story, and then we go back and we're like, oh, okay, as if they're two separate things altogether. But that's not what he intends. So what we have here in verse 20 is this. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And then immediately... There's some guys there who were sent out from Jerusalem who are spying on him, and then he has this encounter with them. And then it goes on in verse 31. His family hasn't left. They're still outside trying to get at him because he's crazy, apparently. (laughs) And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brother and mother? Or, I'm sorry, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now notice he doesn't say father. Because there's only one father. There's only one father. But he, he is a brother. He has siblings. And who is his mother? Now, now this is, there's a lot to be said about Mary. Frankly, in my opinion, Protestants don't really give her the respect her due. But I understand why, because we all know that the Catholics give her uh, just a little bit too much. I was just talking to my wife about this to, this week. She was shocked to hear this. But there are, there are churches in South America where on the crucifix is Mary. And, 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 and I said churches. Uh, I use that word loosely in this case. 
because they're so confused, right? Jesus, you can't get at Jesus. He's, he's very distant. And so you need someone you can, can get to who mediates for you. And Mary is the person who mediates. So Mary, we know later on, comes to be an important character, right? She's there at the crucifixion. But what is going on here? Jesus is calling people out into his family. His family is calling him out, right, from this new family he's created to come back to his old family. And and Jesus, uh, frankly, doesn't seem like he's keeping the fifth commandment here. Honor thy mother and thy father. Right? Tell that woman (laughs) that I'll be with her in a minute. Right? Nobody talks to their mom that way. And, and I mean, especially you don't, right? If my, if, I, if my wife sent my son to get my other son and he came back with a message like this, uh, I would come home from work to deal with that situation. <laughs> I would be like, I will be right there. Who talks to their mom this way? But we know that Jesus is sinless. We know he's not breaking a commandment. So what is going on? This whole section is full of mystery, full of mystery, wonderful mystery. And as we unravel it, we learn a lot about not only God and his family, but us and our families and one another. But this, you know, there's a few things that we're going to highlight now. If you go to verse 19, at the end of the story where Jesus is creating the new Israel, what does it say right at the end? You've got Judas Iscariot. It mentions at the very end, and he is going to betray Jesus. So you've got, it says right here, one of his inner circle are going to betray him. Then you go right to the next set of verses, and his mom and his siblings think he's insane. And then you've got the Pharisees there again, and they think he's of, a, of the devil. Then you've got his family, right? And you have all this stuff. And when, so when Jesus says a house divided cannot stand, is he talking about the Pharisees, or is he talking about himself? Is he making a back end? He's looking around, and he sees Peter, and he sees Judas, and he hears his mom calling from outside. And he says, you know, houses divided against themselves are not going to stand. He's not just telling the Pharisees something about Satan. He's telling them something about himself. If this house doesn't hold together, if it doesn't hold together, it's not going to stand. It's not going to stand. And so what holds this family together? What holds these people together? Now, let's talk about his family for a moment, because they're, they're like most families. They're made for trials and tribulations and sanctification. We see that um, after he has already obtained some reputation, the ambition of his family leads them to desire that he should be admired in Jerusalem. In John 7, verses 3 through 4, they are encouraging him at that point to go up to Jerusalem to make himself better known. Like, Jesus, man, you, you, you are quite something, buddy. Why are you out here like in afraid of Washington in the middle of nowhere doing this work? Why don't you go to the city? Go to the city where there's lots of people, right? There's, you could probably get a lectureship at the university. You could probably get a book deal, get on the radio. You could become a real somebody, Jesus. And so at that point when he's getting a lot of attention, they're, they're perfectly fine with him pursuing it more. Let's go get, let's go. Why, why don't we cash this thing in? Let's see if we can really make some money off this deal. But now that they perceive that he is hated, right? He's hated on one side by the rulers, exposed on the other to numerous slanders. He's even abused by a great body of people who prevent him from eating, right? This is the thing that they just said. These crowds are there, but he can't even eat because the crowds are so busy, so in his face. And so now the family 
right? They see what is going on. They know that there's a conspiracy against him. Now suddenly they're very concerned about how they're going to look. Now, are they really concerned about him or are they concerned about the image of their family, the honor of their family? To prevent any injury or envy or dishonor from arising to the whole family, they formed the design of laying hands on him. Now, that word that they use is actually arrest him. Right? They're going to go and they're going to arrest. The, Mary wants to arrest her own son. It's the same word that they use when the soldiers come and arrest him later in the garden. Now, think about it. She wants to, right? She brings the brothers. Now, I know I, I've, I, I can imagine what this is like. I have brothers. And if one of them came with my mom and my mom was like, all right, you're going to go with us, I would be a little nervous because my brother's a bad dude. Right? And I'd be like, okay, this is going to get super awkward super fast here because now I'm going to get beat down in front of my buddies on my mom's orders by my big burly brother, right? So why are the brothers there? The brothers are there probably to actually physically restrain him. They've come with ill intent. With typical economy of language, Mark returns the scene to a house, okay? Remember, we're going to go back. He's in verse 19. Jesus is up on the mountain. He's talking about his disciples. Now he's in a house, from verse 19 to verse 20, there's no, there's no information, there's no transition, nothing. He's out in the woods, and then all of a sudden he's in a house. Well, the only house that's been mentioned up to this point is Peter's. So we're just going to assume that Mark is, he's just, okay, you guys have been paying attention to the story when I say the house, this is the house that we're talking about. He's back with his followers at Peter's house. Jesus' magnetism attracts people in great throngs. As in the story of the healing of the paralytic, the house is crowded. He's so crowded that he can't even eat. Now think about how many people have to be in a room for you not to have space to have someone bring some food from the kitchen or even space to lift it to your face. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Now, what we're going to do is this thing that Mark does, this Mark and Sandwich, actually has a fancier name. It's called an, um, it's called an intercalation. But that doesn't sound as fun as a Mark and Sandwich. So this Mark and Sandwich that we have here, there's going to be eight more of them, but this is the first one. Now, it suggests that those in Jesus' family who declare that he is mad are not unlike the scribes who attribute his extraordinary powers to alliance with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. The parallel is sharply emphasized by Mark's formation of the charges against Jesus. Okay, in verse 21, this is what it says. For they said, he is beside himself. Verse 30, this is what the the Pharisees say. For they said, he has an unclean spirit. So both charges against Jesus are are, are worded almost identically. Now, the other thing to, to remember is that generally speaking, madness is considered the result of demon possession. So what's actually going on is both groups actually think the same thing is going on. His family, right, don't want to talk about him being possessed by a demon. They they would rather talk about him just being out of his mind. He's he's mad. He's a madman. But the Pharisees have no problem bringing the demons into it. So look, he's possessed by a demon. The charges that they bring are, though worded differently, and one is about madness and one about demon, they're actually the same charge. And I think in modern English we just lose that because now we understand, right, psychology and everything, uh, there's a, a lot of reasons somebody could be have psychosis and somebody could be psychotic. We don't generally attribute it to demons. But in their day, it was one and the same. So the charges are actually exactly the same. 
The Capernaum campaign ends with this double counterattack upon Jesus. To his extended family, he is deluded. To his political opponents, he is demonic. Both Jesus' family and his opponents think that he is not in full possession of his mental faculties. The charge leveled against him is that he has lost his mind. The Markan term describes one who is ecstatic in the sense of psychic derangement, right? I'm so into this idea about preaching the gospel. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to sleep. I don't care who I make angry. I'm just going to go anywhere I want all the time. This is all my life is about, right? Now, we see this kind of thing with uh, teenagers and Xboxes, right? It's like they get an Xbox. They won't eat. They won't sleep. They won't do anything. And you're like, they look deranged because they're down in the basement, you know, in the dark, middle of the day just right we're, we're used to this sort of intensity that people have like imagine the football the guy who's a football fan who who literally just wears the seahawks jersey every day right and he spends all his money on flying to other states to watch the games because he's so into the seahawks right when somebody is is into one thing so much so that they right what do we think of them well you're not even taking care of yourself man i, I remember i had this genius professor uh, at Bellevue Community College, and, and he, he, was, he was so into his subject matter that the guy wouldn't do basic things, like, you know, buy clothes. <laughs> and so, like, all the other professors at the college actually helped take care of him. They would come by his house and drop off groceries. They would come by, I mean, they, he, would, he would stop by his, his friend's office, and they would make sure his shoes were tied and his he wore a cravat, of course. His cravat was all correct and everything. But, but the man had written many, many books. He, he, he'd been a little, he was a little older. He never really had someone take care of him, him, and he was just so into his subject. All he did was study, and they would have to go and find him. In, he would be in the library after it was locked, like at like 2 a.m., and nobody had been able to find him. So like, we'll go, let's go to the library. This is the kind of fanaticism that Jesus is accused of. And are they wrong? What is he about? What has his whole life been about at this point? Now, is he doing it without mirth? Well, no way. Is he doing it with a sense of just like, like the story I'm telling, just this unaware? He's just totally unaware? No, he's completely aware of what he's doing. But, but how much time does he have? He doesn't have a lot of time. If he keeps talking the way he's talking, his time is very limited. And so he, he is on, he's a man on mission. And it makes people uncomfortable, right? Some people are like, yeah, you know, whatever. If you get around to reading your Bible or praying or, I mean, it's okay. Don't, don't, you don't want to be, nobody wants to be accused of being hyper-spiritual, right? That's all that guy talks about is Jesus. <laughs> well, what, I mean, Jesus, all he wants to talk about is the Father. All he wants to talk about is the Father. They're not wrong. But what it shows is that they, there are things that they care about more than the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? When, when, you, when you see a Christian person and, and you kind of have this smarmy attitude about, oh, look at them, man, look at that fanatic, right? Who's, who are you resembling, Jesus or his accusers in this particular point? We could all use a little bit more of this fanaticism. We could all use a little more of it. Now, there's... Um, a number of things here that are culturally different from us. Now, I have um, five siblings. There's five of us. There's four, so I have four siblings. I can't do math. See, Theo, I told you. And, and um, you know, it's easy for me to think of separation from them, 
right? I got, I got a sister. She got married. She lives in South Carolina. I got a brother who I, I think he, well, he was in Spokane. I think he's back here now. He might be in Mexico. Who knows, right? He kind of bounces all over the place. And, and then I got, a, you know, I got family out in Michigan. I got cousins in Spokane, right? So like this family that's all spread out and isn't this tight-knit group is, for us modern Americans, doesn't seem that, you're like, okay, Jesus, I get, I get you. You're not that close to your family. Like if, I, if that one time a year when my family comes to town and they're standing outside desperately wanting me to come outside, I, I, I wouldn't go either because I got friends. <laughs> I know a guy whose mom went down to visit him in L.A. and he didn't, he, he, his mom, it was like this. Like he didn't cancel his meetings. He went out like with his buddies and, and he went on a date and everything and his mom's just like at the hotel waiting for him to come around. Now, now for us modern Americans, there, there's some things that he says here that are just a little, they're culturally hard to understand. But back then, you didn't do anything to dishonor your family, right? The family name is, is important, right? Remember Joseph, he wants to put away Mary quietly because he doesn't want to bring shame and dishonor upon her, her household. Because any, like, it's not like now, like people, nobody, when I do something really stupid, nobody says, man, your dad's an idiot. Right? You're, look at you. Your parents are just morons. Right? Who are your parents? What are they doing? It doesn't bring any shame or dishonor on them necessarily because we're so individualistic. And so sometimes I think some of us just accept what Jesus says here because we're like, okay, yeah, my family's scattered to the wind. I haven't seen them in decades. So sure, okay, I have more important things than them. And, and, and that is a misapplication big time. Because we don't understand of how important the nucleus of the family was. Right? In those days, you worked in your dad's shop, so did your brothers, right? The whole family's carpenters. They all live in the same neighborhood. They don't move all over the place. And, and, and the honor of the family is up to everyone to maintain. And, and what is Jesus doing? He's out courting not only shame and disgrace for himself, but he's out courting shame and disgrace for everyone who is related to him. And before, when they were like, hey, he's starting to get a name for himself. Let's make something of this. Let's go down to Jerusalem. Well, now what it is is it's gone negative. He's getting some negative publicity. And that's reflecting poorly on them. And so they've come to stop him from doing this. And so the statement that he makes is is profound. The statement that he makes about his own family, the fact that he's not taking their call, (laughs) is profound in their culture. You just don't do it. In fact, when, when in the verses 31 through 35, when they're telling him, hey, your mom, and dad, your mom and your brothers are outside, there's actually, in the Greek, there's a rebuke in it. They're like, uh, Jesus, yeah, they're out, outside. What are you doing still in here? Because piety and, under, and their understanding of, of family, their understanding of God, their understanding of covenant, their understanding of we are the people of God, we are the people of God, we are the people of God, family, family, family. So Jesus, they have a claim upon you. You, you can't just sit here talking to the rest of us uh, about some obscure parables. When your mom is outside and desperately wants to talk to you, you have an obligation to go out there. And so even his own people are like, man, you need to just maybe put the scroll down for a minute. It's okay. And go outside and talk to mom. So th- all along in the, in the first three chapters, you see these power struggles. All these power struggles that Jesus is in. Where do you get off? What have you to do with us, the demons say? Where do you get the authority to do that? He's up on a mountain. He's calling people out to come to him. And now what we have is the reverse. We have the reverse. Mama is outside calling him to come out to her. 
So who really has the authority in Jesus' life? Does, does he have his own authority or does mama in the end? And, and I'm telling you, right? How hard would it be? <laughs> You're a believer. Your mom is not. But it's mama, right? It's sweet mama. Mama's outside. Who wouldn't go out to her? And, and, and so Jesus is, is doing something here that is, like I said last week, he's remaking the cosmos. He's remaking our understanding of everything. Because who in their right mind doesn't go out to see what mama wants? I think there's uh, entire country albums made about this kind of thing. Go see what mama wants. And, and, and he's all about slaying the idols. Slaying the idols. There is a greater dishonor than dishonoring your mom and dad. There, there, there is more trouble, right? I would rather have trouble with my earthly mother than my heavenly father. In this power struggle, it's not their desires for me, right? He has the same exchange with Peter. When, when he tells Peter what is going to happen to him at, the, at the, his death and resurrection, Peter's like, far be it from you to do such a thing. And, and, and what you have is you have the same, they're not thinking correctly. In Mark 8, 33, it says, your mind is not on the things of God. And, and so here he is, and his mama is outside, and her mind is not on the things of God. Now, how hard is it to reject that person at that time? How hard is it? Because this whole story is really about this power struggle in our lives. You have families. Now, most of us, I find myself to be in, in, in the conservative Christian circles I run in to be somewhat of an odd duck. Because I was converted at the age of 25, and I had to sit down not only with my closest friends and explain to them why I couldn't go drinking anymore. I had to tell a, a longtime female friend I was like her standing date to like go to things where she couldn't get a date. And we were just friends. But I had to be like, yeah, I can't do that anymore. And even, I know we've known each other since we were like 14 years old, but there, I have another obligation now. And I haven't met her yet, <laughs> whoever my wife is going to be, but I have a deeper obligation than this one to you. I was, um, to get super personal, I, I used to go <laughs> lead this, this poetry reading on Sunday nights uh, at, a, at an open mic at a vegan cafe on Capitol Hill, of all things. And, and it was every Sunday night, and I had to sit down at this board meeting and tell them why I was not going to come anymore. And, and it was, I mean, it was very hard. And, and, I, and some of those people got up from the table, and though I had known them for five years at that point, I have never talked to them again. They, they've never... Uh, one of them still tries to get a hold of me, mostly just to insult me. <laughs> but but whatever. Right? I'll take that. So Christianity costs us something. Now, most of us don't know what that's like. I mean, most of us, right? A lot of us, I think, have Christian parents, Christian siblings, Christian kids, Christian friends. <laughs> right? When's the last time you had to tell somebody you couldn't keep hanging out with them because your worldviews clashed? Now, but here's the thing, though. Should you? Because the other side of this coin is that when I became a Christian, I had people in my family who I hadn't talked to in years, and when somebody asked me if I was going to now pray for them and talk to them, I was like, well, you know, it says right here in the Gospel of Mark, who are my, who's my family? My family is the people who do the will of God. And I remember an older Christian was like, well, yeah, but you didn't talk to them before, so now you're not going to talk to them now like what? Like, what about loving your neighbor? Like, why don't you at least do something so there is a clash so you make that decision? You can't just write people off from the start. 
Because this is used how often by people to write off people who are unlovely. Well, you know, maybe that brother-in-law of yours is, is tailor-made to sanctify you. But Christ comes and he says this thing about family, about abandoning them, and some of us all too easily are like, done. I'm of the household of God now. I don't have to talk to that ignorant reprobate anymore. At the same time, the other ditch is it doesn't, this doesn't do anything to us. Right? Being a Christian doesn't affect in any way, shape, or form who we hang out with, when we hang out with them, or what we do. So there's two ditches here. Two ditches. And Jesus is, is all about shaking the tree. He wants you to stop and he wants you to think. He doesn't want you to just take, right? He doesn't just give you a commandment and you say, okay, I can just apply this in any and all situations. It's, it's very easy. I'm going to go now and I'm going to just do it. Right? It would be nice if that's what Jesus' commands were like. But it's never that way. He says this mysterious thing. Is, <laughs> who are my, who, who's my family? My family are those people who do the will of God. Okay, so you become a Christian and you write off everybody who's not a Christian? Well, no, that's not what he means. That's not what he means. But then there's other verses that we love to apply, which makes us all, right, Christianity is just this nice boy religion where it's like we don't, we don't swear... We're not very. We're never impolite to anyone. But is there someone who who you have made a strange bedfellow with? Is there someone that you are making peace with? And and if you had to actually right that where you're downplaying your Christianity to keep that friendship, to keep that relationship, to keep that bond. Does your Christianity ever cost you anything? Now we all talk about free grace. Amen. The grace of God is free. It was very expensive for him because it cost him the life of his son, right? You guys have heard me talk about this before. When you get a birthday present, someone actually had to pay for it. You don't. That's why it's a gift, right? But, but it's very costly for Jesus to give you this grace. On the other side, it is actually very costly for you, but not because you have to pay him for it, but because you can't have it and everything else before with it. There are people in your life that you have written off that you should not have written off. And there are people that you need to go and write them off as quickly as you can. <laughs> right? The, the, one of the most difficult things, I, I, right, you, I became a Christian, you think this is going to be easy now, right? Life is going to be sweet. Life was really hard before. Life was super easy before. Life got a, got a, a lot harder once I actually had to sit down and wrestle with God about what the word of God <laughs> means and grow in wisdom. But, but the pain, when I first discovered someone who had become an apostate, the first time I had to experience that, and it gets to the point where, okay, well, I'm just going to go with Paul here, and I've got to just say goodbye, and that's that. That's hard to do. Someone whose wedding you were at, someone you were there when their kids were born, someone who was there who was a good friend for you for years, who used to pray with you and read scripture to you, and you used to go to Bible studies in their house, and now you're like, you know, I can't keep this relationship going. That is costly. There's nothing free or easy about that. But, but what do we do? We compromise, right? Well, the gracious thing to do is to just go with the, right? Love your enemies. And loving your enemies means like, like you love them just like you love your friends. Well, God never says that. You love an enemy like an enemy. <laughs> you love a friend like a friend. Now, both require love, but the love looks very different. 
This is very, very hard to apply. It's, I mean, Jesus says things. Here, this is from Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, not in the life to come, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. He says in Luke, unless you hate, hate your your family, you have nothing to do with me. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, my son recently came. I, he, it was perfect timing because I was getting ready for this sermon. I kind of forgot about that verse, uh, maybe intentionally because it's really hard to explain. But my son was reading through his Bible this week, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm supposed to hate everyone in this house? He's like, that's a little contrary to everything else you've been teaching me. Where do I start? No, I mean, he didn't say that. You're like, okay, all right, listen. Your love for for God versus your love for us. One of them should look, you should be so zealous about it, we should call you a maniac. You should be so in love with God that the rest of your loves look like hates. Now, that, that, is, that is weird. And that is hard to understand. That is hard to understand. Jesus is defining who the family of God is. And it is very, very difficult to understand. But there are, there are breadcrumbs for us here, ladies and gentlemen. He says, my family are the people who do the will of God. Now, that, that, that helps us. John 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who are in God's family are born of the will of God. No dead body decides to become alive again. No baby is like, you know what I'm going to do is just come out of this womb now. right? No baby decides to be born of its own will. It just doesn't happen. No dead body ever got up and just started walking around. Now, God has raised a dead body. He's given new life, right? It's his will that creates the people of God. So the other side to this whole thing is we've all too quickly dismissed a whole bunch of people in our lives we ought not to have. His will has created a family. You didn't choose them, right? I love all of you, but I didn't sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to go through the phone book now the Christian phone book, and I'm going to decide who's on my team. No, I showed up here at one point, and, and the family's changed over time, but this is the family of God that God has brought me into. And, and I didn't choose you, and you didn't choose me. So why, right? So how easy does that become to then, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't, these are strangers. These are strangers to me. I don't know these people. I know my brother, though, and he's a super reprobate, but it's a lot more comfortable to hang out with him and my buddy from college, so I'm just going to keep hanging out with them. I'm not going to get to know these people any better because they're strangers. But when God makes a family, he wants, right? that same inclination you have to hang on to your natural family, no matter what, is, the, is what he wants when you're thinking about and talking about your family here. Right? You love your enemies like your enemies. You love your, <laughs> your friends like your friends. You love your family like your family. 
So you, some of you have siblings that God is like, no, 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 that's not going to be your brother for eternity, as far as you know at this moment. You have brothers for eternity, though. Right? He's making claims. He, there's a power play going on, and Jesus here is talking about the ultimate authority, the ultimate commitments in your life. Right? And so most of us weren't converted late in life and have to go around right, the shame parade, telling people why we're not going to see them anymore. But most of us, at this moment in our lives, don't know in our minds who the family of God is. We like comfort. We like respectability. Right? The coworker is the coworker. And so I'm, that's the coworker. I see him every day. I'm going to spend all my time with him. Whatever, whatever he thinks is funny, I'm going to think is funny. I'm not going to think too much about it. He watches Game of Thrones, so I'm going to watch Game of Thrones. So we have something to talk about. I think Mike taught a class about that. <laughs> not quite what I meant. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the will of God that establishes the family of God, and it is the will of God that maintains the family of God. The boundary markers are defined by his will. How often have we heard that, right? The the statement that, um, well, blood is thicker than water. Well, not the water of baptism. Every time I hear that, I'm like, no, 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 no. There is no greater unity. There is no greater grace. There is no greater defining authority in your life than the water of baptism. It's thicker than any other substance. It's thicker than, you know, whatever sports group you're in, whatever politics you're in, whatever club at school. The identifying marker in your life is the water of baptism. And the wine that you're served here that is the blood of Christ is thicker than all the other bloods in your life. Christ came down. And it wasn't just to get a kingdom for himself. It wasn't just to put angels back in the proper order. It was to create a family, a new family, unlike any family that had ever existed. He said, I can't put new cloth on old robes. I can't put new wine in old wineskins. He is remaking everything. And and, and the old can't hang with the new. And why are you carrying around the old still? Right? He's given you new wine for Christmas, and you, and you insist on carrying around in old skins. <laughs> He's given you new broadcloth for Christmas. And you're like, you know what? I don't need to change my clothes. I just need to patch it up a little bit. Slap a little Christianity here. Slap a little Christianity on there. We're good to go. Now, how do you apply this? How? I'm gonna, there's a little something here. Jesus, everyone, he's accused of saying the most extreme things. The, the, the one ditch that I want us to avoid is the radicalism. The, right? Ordinary Christianity is, is false. Right? People like um, you know, those radical Christian guys, ja- or Jackie Chan, not Jackie Chan. But there's a pastor named Chan. What's his first name? Francis, thank you. I read his books. I love his books. Don't get me wrong. The guy actually like gave away his church and went with these home churches and gave away all of this money and gives away. I love it. Do you, brother. Keep writing books. They're very helpful. Because his point is Christianity isn't the American dream. Excellent. The problem, though, is that we can't all be radical. Somebody's got to be a lawyer. Somebody has to actually be a doctor. And what that requires is, you know, a house, an office, (laughs) an education, 
Christians have to be involved in the world. This radical Christianity where we just all give away everything to the poor, well, then who's going to support you? Right? If everybody gives away everything and gives to the poor, aren't we all the poor? Yes, and it doesn't work. So forget the radicalism. But on the other ditch is the people who it doesn't cost them anything. I keep all the friends, I keep all the same likes, all the same interests, all the same desires. I can have this and this too. This is what Peter does, right? Think about this. We, they make a big deal out of Jesus says, come and follow me and leave everything. And say, they're like, see, he leaves everything. Leave then everything. But why is Peter then back in his mother-in-law's house? Why twice in the Gospels does he go fishing? I thought he gave away his nets. Right? Jesus here, he's like, who's my, who's my family? Well, Mary later on, <laughs> she's there. She's one of his biggest followers because she came to understand it has nothing to do with the fact that I gave birth to him. It has the, to do with the fact that God gave birth to both of us. He gets her back. His brother James writes the book of James. Now, imagine having, right, coming to believe that your brother, your brother, is the savior of the world. Now, those of you who have brothers, whoa. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what to do with that, really. He gets them back. The point isn't you just give everything up and, and it's just Jesus all the time. It's you put everything on the altar, all of it, mama too, and he gives back what he gives back. It's his will that you're born. It's his will that dictates how you act. And it's his will that determines what gifts you get and don't. The, the question is, are you willing to put it all on the altar? Are you willing to put it all on the altar? Now, even this, I have, there, there was a Christian in my life who I was, I was not a good influence on them. And, and even I, I, I have since come to understand that even I was put on the altar at one point. So if you have prodigal children, I had prodigal parents, they've since returned. If you have a prodigal anything, right? If you have anything that is, 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 is threatening your love of Jesus Christ, as someone who was once himself put on the altar, <laughs> right? It does work. You've got to be able to risk it all, though. Right? One play of the cards. We're going to just put it all on the altar. And what God decides to give back, he gives back, and I will be content with that. That is what Christmas is all about. Because God the Father puts all his chips on the table, he sends his son, and he says, this is going to be the one power play where I undo everything that's wicked and redo everything that's good, remake everything in one play. And you have to be willing to do the same. I'm going to put it all on the altar, and what the Lord wills that I have, I will have, and I will have it from his hand, and I will rejoice, and what he denies me, he denies me. Now, how do we get the strength to do this? Right? You're going to take mama and put her, put her on the altar. <laughs> right? As a person who was put on the altar, it was not comfortable being put on the altar, because the Christian withdrew to the point where I didn't see them or talk to them for years, and all I, did, I found out later, they were just praying for me. Are you willing to do that to certain people in your life? Do you love God the Father and Jesus Christ enough to put that person up on the altar? 
put it all on the altar. Right? That's what the, the father, what, what does he have that's greater than his own son? What love does he have that's deeper than that, that's bigger than that, that's more beautiful than that, and he put it on the altar for you? So then why are you holding anything back from the altar to him? He says, May, be a living sacrifice. Put it all there. Now, and do, does he just take it all away from you because he's a big bully? No. He gives back what's good and right and true and beautiful, and he sanctifies things and gives them back to you. And then, or, he takes those things and he gives you things you couldn't have believed were better than the thing that you were holding on to. Right? This is about, Christmas is about what, what is withheld and what is given. It is about the old and it's about the new. And, and we never, 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 never get beyond the point of hearing, this, hearing it put in these simple terms. It cost him everything. Does it cost you anything? Is it about him or is it about you? Is it about his will or your will? Is it about what you're holding on to or what you're willing to put into his hands? Christmas, he, put, he gave it all. He gave it all. He held nothing back. Don't hold back. Father, we thank you for this Christmas time. We thank you for the gift of your son who, may, who is even now making the world, our hearts, our minds, our families new. M- many of us, Lord God, are holding on to things that are old, things that are vile, things that we are at peace with that we ought not to be at peace with. And I, and I pray, Lord God, that you would, in fact, in our lives, in our relationships, in our hearts and minds, bring a sword. And in that pain, Lord, I pray that in, in, in every swing of it, every nick of it, every stab of it, that we would turn more and more to Jesus Christ, who is the only succor, who is the only bomb, who is the great physician, who is all and in all, in all that we need. I pray, Lord God, that you would take our idols and slay them before our very eyes, that you would burn down our kingdoms, that you would fix our eyes on Christ, and that you would fill our hearts with joy. Your son came, and he came, and it was serious business. And he didn't mind making trouble, and he did it with joy. And I pray, Lord, this Christmas time, that we would rejoice in the great gift that you laid on the altar for us, and that in return we would lay everything, all of our lives, all of our strength, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our possessions on the altar back. Amen.